show of hands, how many of you own a Ring doorbell? Pretty good group. Okay. I personally do not yet. I'm tempted. I think I might get one of these uh, one of these days. But we do have one at church. I don't know if you noticed that on the way in. I'm glad we do because there are times when Pastor A and I aren't here and Holly's here alone. It, it's nice. It's a great security feature to have here. There's something else about the ring doorbell. For those of you who have them, you probably know about this. Those that don't, uh, it actually uh, it alerts you to suspicious activity that happens in your neighborhood, or you can kind of set what dimensions you want it to uh, kind of register for you. It's kind of like a virtual neighborhood watch. I like that. For those of you in this area that do have the ring doorbell, you've probably been alerted that there's been a lot of suspicious slash criminal activity on the east side of Madison at night. A lot of uh, teenagers are going around neighborhoods looking for unlocked cars. Uh, some are getting stolen. Some they just rummage through uh, to see what they can take. So uh, it is a helpful device. It helps you to be on alert. Kind of helps you to watch your neighbor's property too. That's why it really caught my eye when I came across this story. There is a woman who posted this on social media and her ring camera had captured this image of this young man, and so you can send out alerts like these. Does anybody know who he is? She really wanted to get his name, um, but it's probably not for the reason you think. Uh, what she was doing was that she was trying to find out his name because this man was driving his truck down the road and actually smashed up her, her mailbox. Uh, instead of driving off, what he did was he actually went to the door, he owned up to it, and he apologized. In fact, he even offered to pay for it. And she said, no, it wasn't necessary. I think she was impressed with his honesty. And that probably would have been the end of it, except three days later he shows up again and again apologizes. This time he brings a plate of cookies along, probably kind of as a token of his sorrow for the accident having happened. And again, she, she said it just wasn't necessary. I believe it must have caught her so off guard, she never asked the young man's name. And so if you've been reading up here, she wants to find it out because she really wants to get in contact with his parents to commend them on what a fine young man that they are raising. As I was reading through this, I was wondering to myself, I wonder if that gentleman is a Christian. I hope so. Because I can't think of a better example of somebody letting their light shine. Somebody who has a philosophy on life, and quite frankly, I hope Christianity in his heart and that he was willing to show his love for his neighbor by taking accountability for something he had done and trying to make amends. Not that he needed to even things out, but because he knows somebody had done that for him. This is an example of what we're going to be studying this morning, letting your light shine. And if you were here last week, you know this is a companion lesson to what we studied last week. And it begs the question, how can Jesus call himself the light of the world and then turn right around and tell us that we're the light. How do those two connect up? And today's lesson, it's very intriguing. It's an oft-misunderstood lesson. And as we unravel some of the mysteries, you might be surprised exactly what it's teaching us, that the Lord wants to lighten our load in this life, but there's a way to do it. We're designed to shine. Uh, as promised last week, here's your opening video. Some people only care about themselves. No one cares about your stupid vacation. Some people treat others poorly. Do 
with her anarchy. There's certain things that are right and there's certain things that are wrong. So don't believe what she's talking about. Some people only care about being right. Some people don't seem worth the time. But the truth is, most people are just working to get by. Most people are terrified to reveal their scars. Most people are fighting an invisible battle. Most people are worth the effort. Because all people are created in the image of God. All people carry the glow of the divine. All people matter enough. For God to become one of them. God thinks every person is worthy of love. Imagine if we did too. Let's be a church where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible. So how do we get there? Well, we have to start here with our lesson. It's from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, I am very eager to dig into this lesson. The problem is, is there is some groundwork that we need to get laid here in order to understand exactly how we come to the proper understanding of what God has Matthew teach us. And I made a small allusion to it last week, but today we really have to dig in because this section of Scripture has been so terribly misunderstood and misinterpreted. So let's just simply go to what we're doing here. This was last week's lesson from Matthew 4. This is today's lesson from Matthew 5. They're about a chapter apart. And typically as we're reading through Scripture, we just kind of assume it goes along event after event after event, except that it doesn't. See, Matthew's lesson from last week took place in those early months of his public ministry. And what we saw was Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus transitioned from his own hometown of Nazareth to Galilee of the Gentiles, something that God had prophesied hundreds of years before it ever happened. So now about a year goes by, and as Jesus is doing his work mainly from the city of Capernaum and mostly in the northern region of Galilee, what we recognize is his popularity is tremendously on the rise. That's one of the reasons why today's lesson actually doesn't take place in the city of Capernaum, but it's estimated about a mile away on this. It's here it's referred to as the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, whether or not it actually had that name back then, uh, probably not. So it's out on a mountainside where uh, many people gather, and Jesus teaches what is traditionally known to us as his Sermon on the Mount. Of course, as the popularity rises, so does the opposition. 
What I've done here is I've cut and pasted one of the neat things I got when I went to seminary. One of the professors had actually put together a summary harmony of the four Gospels. One of the first things I did when Pastor A showed up for his vicar year was, Holly, can you run off a copy of this? Because it is an invaluable tool. And I guess if you could twist my arm, maybe I could talk Holly into making copies of this for you as well for your own Bible study. The reason why I grabbed this section is because this is where our lesson comes from. And the first thing you'll notice is that only two of the Gospels record it. And Luke does so in a very limited fashion, which immediately throws up a flag and goes, we need to spend some time with Matthew to figure out why does God have Matthew, of all the Gospel writers, focus so much on this lesson and none of the others. It has to do with something I hope you've already noticed as I'm talking here. Mark, Luke, and John are very chronological. Look at how nicely that works. Chapter 1, 2, 3. You go to Matthew and you're going, what in the world is this guy doing? 8, 9, 12, 10, 5, back to 8. Matthew is the least chronological of all of the four Gospels. And while we might find that frustrating as modern-day thinkers, can't we just go A, B, C, D? That's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, there's a reason why I chose this Gospel writer to focus on this sermon, and you better understand why. It has to do with Matthew's audience as well as the technique in which he writes. I did talk about this last week. Matthew writes basically to a Jewish audience. Uh, he's speaking to his own people. And there is a major theme that he is pounding away throughout the entire gospel that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Whether you want to believe it or not, people, he is. You want proof? This chart becomes very useful. There is no other gospel that either directly or indirectly cites the Old Testament as Matthew. He's much greater than the other three, almost as much as all the other three put together. It's because he's writing to people who know the Old Testament. And so he lays out prophecy after prophecy and shows only Jesus Christ has fulfilled these things. But what we're seeing is this pattern of Matthew not caring so much about the when, as he is focusing on the what. He doesn't care about the chronology. He cares about the concept. And so each lesson within Matthew is fully developed to take us right back to the main focus of the Holy Spirit's writing through Matthew, that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He is the light of the world. And that's good news, not only for the world, but for us, because Jesus Christ lightens our load of living in a sinful world on a day-to-day -day basis and then ultimately in eternity. Now, it's important that you understood this because this lesson does this same thing. It's a teaching technique that God wired Matthew to do. And you have to understand that now as we dig into what we're studying today because oftentimes we're looking at it from such a modern perspective and dare I say such a doctrinal perspective, that is the teachings themselves, that we lose sight of the big picture. What is the truth that Jesus is actually teaching? So he starts out, you are the light of the world. You've all probably heard that, probably taught it even as a child. It means we're supposed to go out and share our faith with other people, right? Well, true, Scripture does teach that. That's obviously what God wants. You might be surprised that this isn't quite what that's about. It's a happy coincidence and consequence of this, but that's not the main focus. How do I know that? Well, let's get started off on the right path. There's something interesting Jesus does when he introduces this section of his sermon. He really says the word you twice. Now, in our language, it, it doesn't register or show up that way. But he uses this unique form, and then he doubles it with a verb. And what he's trying to do is say, you know what? There's a process here, and you play an important part in it. You do. But you have to understand the process. 
Jesus is teaching to people, and Pastor Abrahamson has already alluded to this, that were instructed in a religion that said, if you want to have a relationship with God, it kind of falls on you. You've got to be a good person. You've got to do the right thing. You, and in their minds, that's the, the concept of light. You heard about that rich young ruler who came to Jesus. What do I need to do yet? Because he felt this angst. He felt this deep need. I, there's something more I should... I'm still missing something. And that's where the conversation begins. What Jesus is doing, and that's also why his opposition is growing, he's now going around publicly and saying, that's not how it works. He says, I'm Messiah. I was the promised one sent by God to do the good so that you could be good. What has happened with the religion of Jesus' day, and unfortunately, if we're honest, we see it so much today, it gets turned on its head. God doesn't love us because we're good for Him. God loves us because He's good for and to us. This is the connection that Jesus is trying to teach these people. And while it might seem foreign to them, almost too new and crazy, what he's actually doing is teaching a concept that's as old as time itself. He's taking these people back to the Garden of Eden, to the moment of creation of man. And basically it's a design that God lays out already in the Garden of Eden. I want to be connected to you, my creation, but there's a process for doing this. And then he lays out, this is the process. This is how it's designed to work. I made you, I love you, and reciprocally, I want you to love me in return. And in order for that to happen, there are certain things you can do and certain things you most certainly can't do. Because if you go down the path of the things you can't do, not only can we not have a relationship, but the only thing that we will have is separation. The moment you eat of it, you will die. I can't think of anything that makes separation more clear than death. This also goes to the other part of creation that God was trying to teach Adam and Eve right from the beginning is there is a purpose. There's a difference between a design and purpose. The design gets you to your purpose. And the ultimate purpose is the one that we grow up hearing, love God, love neighbor. I don't know if it's ever been boiled down that basically to you, but that's why God created everything. Love God, love neighbor. And as it was originally designed, it was a beautiful system. And imagine if every day people continued down the path of what God had designed, today we would be hooting and hollering and having a blast. Unfortunately, we know that it's not the reality because man chose to go against the way God had designed this to work. And so we needed a Messiah to show up and teach us what it's all about. I love how Jesus does this, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when he's teaching an abstract concept, a lot of times, and he's the master of this, of course he's God, he uses these very concrete illustrations, and what he does is he pulls them from everyday life. This one, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, duh. Okay, all he's doing is showing the people something that is true of light. At night, against the backdrop of darkness, within the range of the eye, you look out on the horizon, and wherever there's a city, because of the light, it will stand out against that darkness. Very basic. It's something you learn every day in life. But because it's such an important point, and maybe it's because he's teaching the sermon in the middle of the day, he goes with a much more everyday event, and it has to do with how we function when our houses are dark. In those days, if you wanted light in your room, what you would do is you would simply do this. And I sure hope this works. All right? So far, so good. 
when I tested it, it wasn't that good. And by the way, when you order something on Amazon, make sure you check the price, or I'm sorry, the size, because I thought this was an actual real life-size lamp when I ordered it. Nah, it's one of these miniature ones, so it still works. Okay, here's the aside. He talks about lamps, all right? Normally what we think of is the one in the temple, the seven-branched candelabra uh, that was there to represent God's light. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the more common clay olive oil lamps. This is uh, from over in Israel. Uh, unfortunately, it's a miniature, but this is what they use. They put olive oil in it, and they light it. And what he's saying is, is the last thing people are going to do once they light these things is this. Well, that makes sense. Uh, a lamp like that gives off about 40 watts, they figure. And you usually had a one- or two-room house and if you wanted people to see where they were going, if you didn't want them to trip over uh, their own feet, what you did was not to uh, you know, light a lamp and then put it under a basket. What you would do is you would actually trim your lamp in such a way so that the wick would stand out. I want to make sure I get this right. All right. And then they'd light their lamp. And then instead of putting it under something to block its light, they would have a convenient or handy stand like this, and they take it to the center of the room. Oh, that was close. <laughs> Not every prop always goes the way you want it to, just so you know. And it would give light out to the entire house. It's in the center of the room. Now, there's a part of this illustration that maybe you didn't quite catch right away, and I did it twice. Sure, the lamp's the illustration giving off light, but I had to light it. A light source has to be brought to the lamp. And I'm not sure everybody, as Jesus is teaching that lesson that day, got that. But that's part of the illustration as well. What he's trying to do is teach us about the design of light. In fact, that, he says, is a perfect illustration of the role of Messiah and God's promise to rescue us. Now, if you permit me a minute, this is where I want to bellyache about the translation in most of our Bibles because it takes us down a wrong path. It does not say, let your light shine, as if it were optional. It doesn't say that for two reasons. One, that's an imperative. That's a command. Shine! The other thing is, is Jesus is describing the design of how light works. Once you bring light to that lamp, it must shine. That's how it's designed to work. And he's saying, this is the perfect way to understand these two compatible lessons in Matthew. Jesus is the light. That light is brought to us. And because of the way that it's designed, according to God's uh, whole process here, shining is what we will do because that is what we were designed for. Now imagine sitting amongst the people that day on the mountainside and going, wait a minute, this, this is not what my rabbi taught me. This is new stuff. little cutting edge. Maybe something that we better investigate, but then there's also going to be a number of those in the crowd going, nah, that ain't right, that's wrong. And yet Matthew's offering prophecy after prophecy saying, this is how God always planned for it to work. So how does Jesus bring all this together? And the interesting thing is he does it in a place where we would not expect it. He does it with the reality that you live in a sinful world that is broken and things are not as God originally designed. And so God has also implemented something to get his children past that. What on earth would God put into this whole process that would help to actually make light work the way it was always supposed to work? Well, Jesus says good deeds, good works. 
Now, let's be honest right up front. This is a very confusing topic. Good works. <laughs> I think I alluded to the fact that when I was a young pastor, I would not enjoy preaching on this text. Lutheran pastor talking about good works. That's yeah, Pastor Abrahamson even alluded to it. Most times you leave off verse 10 on the Ephesians passage. We love verses 8 and 9, by grace you are saved. Through faith, that's our go-to. But usually verse 10 gets chopped off, and it talks about works. It's something we've always struggled with. That rich young ruler struggled with good works. Where do they fit? In fact, the early century Christians struggled with it. The epistle of James was written to them because they didn't understand how faith and works were meant to complement one another. That the two are inseparable if you understand the design. And of course, we have in our own history and heritage the Protestant Reformation, which did deal with many of the church's abuses, amongst other things, but the number one focus was over the understanding slash misunderstanding of how do works fit into God's plan of salvation. Now, there's two issues here we're going to deal with, and I want to take the first one off the table, the most prominent confusion. What are good works? How do they work? Is a Christian saved by works? The answer is yes. Only by the works of Jesus Christ on a cross. There is no good works in and of ourselves that we could offer to earn heaven. If a Christian could be saved in and of himself by their good deeds, then Jesus would have died in vain. But what happens is, is we get two camps. You get one camp who says, you know what, all I got to do is say a prayer. God doesn't care about how I live. He just forgives me. And so they say this prayer and they go on living unchanged. But then you get other people who believe that they can earn their salvation by their good deeds. But then basically they are saying every time they believe their good works will earn them heaven, that Jesus died in vain. But we believe as Christians that Jesus saves us by grace, but we are expected to do good works. Augustine said it best. We're not saved by faith plus works, but by faith that works. Jesus gets on the inside and changes our affections for Him so that we want to serve Him, live for Him, love Him, and do good deeds. But the deeds we do are empowered by His Spirit. Is a Christian saved by works? No. Only through Jesus Christ. But we do serve Him in return. So that's the first major confusion. Can you work your way to heaven? And the whole point of the sermon, at least that section that we're studying today, is Jesus saying that's not what it's about. But if you understand the design of how God created man and how that relationship is supposed to work with man and God, there are going to be some natural consequences, uh, some outputs from the design. That's what Jesus really wants to focus on, not can they save you, because obviously they can't. That's why he's here. But where do they fit? Well, there's a couple things I would really like you to understand, and let's begin with getting rid of our own baggage. If you were like me, I was raised with this passage as, you should go around sharing your faith so that others can see you're a Christian and so that hopefully the outcome is that they will like what you're doing and then that will lead them to God, kind of like a moth to a light bulb. And in the end, they're saved as well. And it's a great thought. We certainly do want to be shining lights in a dark world and hopefully can display a message of Christ's love to others. But this isn't the passage that talks about that. This passage has been truly misunderstood and the real value of it has been lost. And so we have to do just a little work to get back to what is Jesus actually talking about when he's talking about these good deeds. 
Well, it really comes down to two things. First is the grammar. That word that in the original, I put it up there. What it's doing is it's introducing what's known as a final purpose clause. So what is the purpose for the design of your shine? What, what does God want as the outcome of that? Well, here's the thing. It's often been misinterpreted that the first thing you do, your good deeds, then lead to the second thing. And that's not how the grammar works. This is a final purpose clause that says there are two purposes to what God has designed for you and your life. So it's that they may see your good deeds and that they may praise your Father in heaven. That's the two, two purposes for your design. All right, let's deal with the good deeds part. And really we have to take a look at uh, that word good, and that's where a lot of confusion comes in. If you actually understand what Jesus is saying, the whole first misunderstanding of trying to work your way to heaven is taken right off the table. Not to bore you, but you need to understand that in the language in which Jesus is offering this truth, there are actually three words for good. Uh, these two, agathos and christotas, uh, actually are talking about what you would call an inherent goodness. A goodness that comes from the inside and then goes out. It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, when you would talk about things like God's original creation, these would be the words that would apply to it. Jesus doesn't use either one of these. He actually uses the third modifier for goodness, this kalos, which talks about a type of goodness that comes from the outside and affects what's on the inside. That's the word that Jesus uses to talk about our good works, our good deeds, which immediately tells us that they are not from us. Now, do you understand why I made such a big deal about the fact that part of this illustration is that you have to actually bring a light source to the candle or to the lamp, and I think I'm out of oil, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Yeah, it's gone. You get the point. You have to bring light to the lamp in order for the lamp to actually do for what it was designed. That's what Jesus is talking about with this kalos. There's goodness that Messiah has brought to us. That's what makes us good, and that it's what makes what we do good. It's not from us. It's from Him. That's how it works. He's the light. And because He brings that light to us, then we are the result of that. We're designed to shine His light. Now, here's the other part. And this is how these purpose clauses work. You can actually take one of the purposes away, and the other one will still function. You see, God can be glorified when we shine our light, whether people see our good deeds or not. You are designed to shine, show your light, so that others may glorify God. And that's where this part comes in that Pastor Abrahamson did emphasize. That's part of what God created. That's part of the design. Do you know that before this world was called into existence, God already had in mind and set a plan for what you would do with your life here on this earth? Whether sin was part of it or never became part of it, God already had a design for how you would function as part of his great creation in order to glorify God and so that other people would go, hey, I want to glorify God too. What's often lost is, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't work through our good works. They do call people's attention to that there's something different in our lives, and of course that is Christ. But Scripture teaches the only way in which a lost sinner is converted is through the means of grace, the Word and the sacraments. Our good deeds do not fit that that uh, that definition. So while the good deeds do serve in other people glorifying God, the end result isn't always faith. We hope it will be, 
But that isn't what Jesus is preaching. You do your good works. You shine your light simply because one of the other results is God is glorified in your life and ultimately in the lives of others as well. And so if you really want to understand what the whole concept of this section is about, as well as what we've been studying this entire Epiphany season, if you'd like your burdens lifted, if you'd like your load lightened, then what we need to do is talk about what God has designed. That's what this entire lesson has been about. And for the life of me, I can't understand why, as we were being educated in our faith, somebody along the way didn't say, hey, there's some unique element to this, and it's not just about sharing your faith, and it's not just about good works. It's about everything. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is we take this section of Scripture or the Ephesians passage and we tear it apart just to prove a doctrine, when in fact what we should be doing is taking a step back and going, wow, God has done something amazing, and He's invited me to be part of it. Let me, let me break this down as simply as I can. Oops. If we want something like a padlock to work to protect our lives, there has to be design to it. You can't just take a bucket of parts, throw them in a bag, shake it up, and whatever comes out you hope is going to be able to protect your home, because I guarantee you it will not. Think of the thought process that goes into how a key works in a lot. And this is a simple form of design. Can you imagine the hours that were spent? The thought process that goes into the ring doorbell so that we can sit comfortably in our living room and we don't even have to get up to answer the door. Because who's ever there ringing the doorbell looks a little bit shady and I'm not going to go say hi. Each of these has a design that makes them function and work in a way that is a blessing to our lives. The interesting thing is, is the simple things about these items of our life also is true of life itself. Because there are a lot of times we end up right here. Feel like the whole world's came in on us. Even on a typical work day, even when life is humming along kind of okay, you get to the end of it and you're just beat. Something has probably frustrated you. Even on the best of days, you look back and go, is this... Is this as good as it gets? And leave it to the Messiah to show up and say, No! You were designed for so much more. I want better for you. I want to lighten your load, but there's only one way this is going to work. You have to follow the design. You have to understand how God made you and how you're meant to function. In fact, when you understand that you are the best part of God's creation, Imagine the thought process that all-knowing God, all-wise God put into his creation of you and his design for your life. And yet we putter along like, man, I wonder if God even knows what's going on. I wonder if he can see what I'm going through. Are you kidding me? A God who puts that kind of thought into us doesn't just turn his back and walk away and go, well, <laughs> you're on your own. Even when we go against the design, he says, I, I still have an answer because you are the best of everything I've made. In fact, look at the lengths he goes to, not just to forgive us, but to actually get us back to that original design. The Messiah brought us goodness so that we could be good. The Messiah lived perfectly so that in eternity we can perfectly live with God. That was also part of the plan, the design that if mankind along any part of the road said, you know what, I'm going to go my own way, God says, I still got a plan to love you, and I will do it. 
When you are up against the challenge, when you are facing some darkness, it's our Savior who not only shows us God's love, but He shows us a strategy to deal with it. You know, He doesn't run and hide from the darkness. In fact, He confronts it. And that's what He encourages us to do as well. But He doesn't say, I want you to fight this battle on your own. I want you to understand I fought the battle for you. And you can handle this with my love and strength. But you need to understand the outcome is something that I have designed. And in fact, maybe it's on your darkest of days when it feels like the burden's as heavy as it can get. That's exactly when we need to stop and consider how God has created us and to have a relationship with us. Because not only is this light, but maybe one of the neatest things of God's plan, maybe one of the most beautiful, loving parts of God's creation. You were designed to shine. I've been wrestling with purpose. What was I created for? I'm more than what you see on the surface. See beneath my skin and scars. I'm skinned and scarred. Marred and twisted. Scarred by the past I need to be lifted. And sometimes I question my own existence. What was I put here for? It might seems, it seems that there seems to be more. It's like I'm a light, unplugged from the socket. I mean, do I really exist to put money in my pocket? This nine to five feels like a nine to nine. My mind entwined, I pass the time. Life circles me as I wait. What is my estate? I feel like I was made for something great, and yet I can't quite put my finger on it. But when I look at my fingers and I see their design, I realize I'm one of a kind. And something created me. No, someone created me. And that someone made me for a reason. Even though it's clear the past years have been treason, I still sense this drawing, this calling, that even in the midst of my falling, there was someone who died to pick me up. Someone who rose to fix me up. Someone who's coming back to lift me up. And that someone is Jesus. See, God made me for a purpose. And when I delight in Him, it's brought to the surface.